We're going to be looking at Jesus in Luke chapter 4. Probably a well-worn passage, but hopefully we'll um, shed some new light on it for you. I I don't intend to belabor the text too much, but I think it's a fun uh, consideration. It's the temptation of Jesus Christ. So if we're talking about being Christ-like, one of the ways we are certainly called to to do this is by resisting sin. Now, how many of you, when you've come to these texts before, whether it's in Matthew 4 or Luke 4, and we're going to be in Luke tonight, when you come to the text, it's something like this. Um, Jesus Christ obeyed the Bible, therefore you must obey the Bible. Like, like as though he was tempted, but because there was a scripture that said he couldn't, he didn't. And I think there's a huge missing step there that hopefully we'll emphasize tonight, even in the title I tried to uh, call our attention to the thought that Jesus Christ is walking by faith. And I, I think that's something we don't consider, that Jesus was not merely a highly regulated or highly disciplined or deeply devoted person alone, although I think he was all of those things. It, it was that he was a trusting person. That as he's walking through the temptations, Satan is asking for him to walk away from trust And so it motivates the obedience of Christ is not just this regulated principle of I must, but a true devotion and trust in the Father. And so that's where I say Jesus is at the intersection of trust and loyalty to the Father. And I think that's really the the crisis going on. Now, if we back up a little bit in the life of Jesus, he's just gone through what event? As Jesus is getting tempted... He's just been baptized. Verse 1 and 2 then. He's now been in this wilderness for how long? 40 days. And if we look in verse 2, being tempted. So it's not as though he's in the wilderness for 40 days, minding his own business, you know, chasing down grasshoppers and scorpions. He's, he's probably, in some ways, retreating into prayer and meditation on, the, on those scriptures, but also he's being what? Being tempted. So he's being tempted. Why is he in the wilderness now? Because, verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, he returned from Jordan and he was led. I think Matthew has the idea of driven by the Spirit into the wilderness. Okay, so Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days because God wants him there. I think knowing that really helps us with the first temptation. That he's in the Lord's will. He's in a place of vulnerability because the Lord has put him there. And Satan has been pressing him for 40 days. And now Luke and Matthew zoom in on this moment with some high-intensity focus. And we see three temptations in there in a little more clarity. We don't know what went on before this. So we look in in verse 3. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. And having quoted the scripture, Satan runs away with his tail tucked between his legs. That's how I always heard it in Sunday school. So just like, you know, the Bible is our defense against temptation. Isn't that kind of how you, you've, you've, I don't know if anyone else has been taught by fantastic Sunday school teachers, but when you're six and you're trying to capture this for a little six-year-old, it, that's what the six-year-old takes away, is quote a Bible verse and the devil flees. Um, that, I don't think that's at all what happens here. Jesus quotes this verse, and, and he is quoting this out of Deuteronomy. And when you, when you go back to Deuteronomy and you're considering the context here, the point isn't 
that, that, and I think this would be another false way we could understand this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by the, by the word of God as in the Bible. But that's also really not what Deuteronomy is saying. Deuteronomy is suggesting to Israel, man shall not live by bread alone because man desperately needs God's right relationship and provision at the right time. And that's how man lives. Maybe you could say it this way. Jesus was being tempted to step outside of God's provision for him and take matters into his own hands. Um, I, I think you could see maybe this temptation in various different way, ways. Maybe a man under financial pressure is, is tempted to lie on his taxes and taking matters into his own hands rather than trusting in the provision and the timing of God. He is facing that similar type of temp temptation. Rather than trusting in the Lord's provision and living by the instructions of the Lord, he would rather violate the Lord's blessing and chase his own answers. Who put him in the desert? Who promises to care for his people? And so the real question is for Jesus, are you going to trust God to care for you? Or are you going to take matters into your own hands and overstep in order to, to, to rescue yourself from this um, pro probably like body-gripping hunger. I've never gone 40 days without food. I don't know too many people that have, but I can only imagine that he's hurting. Um, I've gone for a little while before, but 40 days is, is intense. And here's, here's the principle then. God's provision is where we must rest. And I'd say this on multiple levels. So you'll see this, and I think this is true, like, um, my aunt would be a sad case of this. Uh, she married a man she shouldn't have because she was so eager to get married and so doing violated God's commands to not be unequally yoked. And rather than trusting and living in God's provision at God's time, she chooses to step over the boundaries of God's commands to get something that she desperately wants. And this temptation drives right at, not a sinful desire. I mean, bread, bread probably being more like euphemism for food, right? Man should not live by food alone. It's not like God's against starches. It's, it's, that, it's that God's saying man's more than food. More essential to your needs in life is rightness before your God. Are you going to trust him? Trust his time, trust his provision, trust his care for you. Are you going to trust yourself to your creator by doing good? Or are you going to find ways to get what you want or think you need by, by violating and overstepping? It's a really simple question of trust. Are you going to trust? You might have this example or, or see this in your home if you have children. Your child says they're hungry. You say, wait, mom will make you something. And all of a sudden you hear some clatter from the kitchen. And you see, your child has climbed up in the cupboards, has pulled stuff out, and is trying to make their own food. And saying, well, listen, this is, this is not going to work out for you in so many different levels. Mom is a much better cook, and it tastes much better, and now you've disobeyed mom, so there's going to be consequences coming. Are you going to wait and trust? The sad thing is, many of us actually prove our kids' distrust correct. God never will. God is trustworthy. Because that's, that's temptation number one. Temptation number two, then. You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. 
So, so this is a, a, a simple quotation from our Ten Commandments. But, but when you look at the text here, look in verse 4. After Jesus re, uh, answers him, the devil takes him away. Verse 5, shows him all the kingdoms, kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. This is a fascinating just like thought. Because Matthew says he takes him to a hill and he sees all the kingdoms of the world. And that makes some sense, but like you can't see all the world from one mountain. This is not the way a ball works. You can at least like maybe get half of it. But you're not going to get the whole world. So, I mean, there's something supernatural going on here where Satan is able to show him the whole world in a moment and say, this could be yours. Now, we don't need to exegete whether or not he can actually do that. Satan's a liar. Whether or not he has the right to do this, I don't think he does. And then he says to Jesus, verse 6, if you do this, what? If you do this, excuse me, verse 5, shows them all the kingdoms in a moment. Verse 6, to you I will give this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If then you will worship me, it will be yours. And Jesus answered him and said, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And that's the end of it. Like he just says that he quotes the verse and Satan's like, okay, next scene. But that's, that's, that's not the temptation. The temptation is this. By an act of worship, Jesus is able to get to the finish line of God's plan. God's plan is to bring all the kingdoms under the authority of his appointed king, Jesus. And so when Satan's like, hey man, there's a shortcut to this marathon. You don't need to run the whole thing. Just like cut through this section right here, worship me, we'll be to the finish line, we're done. Well, what does that route look like if Jesus doesn't take the shortcut? He knows what's coming. Like he's read the Bible. God's servant is going to suffer for the sins of the people. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to suffer as a sinner for all the sins of all the justified of all the ages. And if that be true, then Jesus is given a, a, a context here in which he can achieve, and again, I don't think Satan, Satan's a liar, so Satan should not be trusted in this moment, but he's promised you get the trophy without running the race. You get the prize without the punishment. So the temptation is by an act of worship, Jesus could avoid God's plan of sacrifice and death and thereby achieve his goal of establishing God's kingdom. Again, it wouldn't really be God's kingdom, would it? It's a lie. Here's the principle, I think, as, as we kind of walk in the sandals of Jesus and are trying to learn to be like him. We must not defect even for a moment to escape a thousand, thousand lifetimes in hell. Like, like Jesus is willing to suffer because the Father says, this is the way. And we have that in so many different ways in our life called upon us. Like, hey, this is how you live and please me. This is your call, Mark. Do this. And it feels like defection just isn't that big of a deal. Um, I think a really, uh, a, a very present case within like the context of church life, and we'll probably go through this. If you're in Crossway for the next 20 years, you'll probably see this every couple years, um, and just speaking um, within our church family. And you all know, and I've mentioned it to you, that we have a couple divorces that are probably impending in our church. You talk to these people, and it's essentially 
I'm done being patient with this person and to escape, and let me use these words metaphorically, to escape this hell, I will sin. I know God doesn't approve, but I'm out because I just can't handle the torment of a miserable marriage. So I will sin. Now when I lay that next to this, Jesus had real, horrible torture beyond imagination that he was unwilling to sin to escape. And and so I think the resolve of Jesus to trust that God's plan was good for him, even though it was horrifically painful, was a level of trust that we need to cultivate. Again, we must not defect even for a moment to escape a thousand, thousand lifetimes in hell. Do not let yourself think, it's okay, God will forgive me. That's hellish in theology. Like, that's a satanic lie. To think like, oh, just this moment, looking at this image, or it won't matter if I just, like, whisper this, you know, nugget of gossip. It's just not a big deal. God will forgive. Can you imagine if Jesus said that then? All of redemption's gone. Okay, so that's temptation number two. Hopefully you're getting an understanding of like where the temptation really is. I think the third one's the hardest one for me to get a hold of. So, so when you come to the next section, verse nine, he took him to Jerusalem and set him up on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you and... On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan's temptation here is a little bit harder to unpack. It's like, okay, is Jesus like a closet bungee diver and doesn't care about having bungees, trying to figure this thing out? Like, why is this so tempting? I mean, who stands on top of a roof and is like, I bet if I jump, angels would catch me. And why would Jesus be so like, oh man, maybe I should. Like, what, what in him would cause him to, like, to be attracted to this call? Why would Satan think this would work? It seems as though Jesus is being called to manipulate the situation to force the Father to act, thus proving the Father's care and approval over him. That is, when you go back to Exodus 17, and so we'll get here in a little while as we go through Exodus, Israel's come out of the promised land They're thirsty and they cry out to God and and are basically accusing God of not being a rescuing, caring God. Now think about what this means after you've read the first 17 chapters of Exodus and you get there, or the first 16 chapters, you get to chapter 17 and you're like, God, where are you? Like this makes no sense. God has proven his care. He's rescued them. He's delivered them. He's brought about the 10 plagues, protecting them from most of those plagues, part of the Red Sea, defeated the Egyptian army, safely secured for them uh, food by bringing manna from heaven that they probably ate the day they complained, God, where are you? Are you really a saving God who's good to us? And Moses calls out to God. It's like, they're going to kill me. And God says, why are you testing me? Why are you testing me? And so then you come back to Deuteronomy, or come forward to Deuteronomy, it says, you shall not test the Lord your God in Deuteronomy 16. And it's referring back to that text in Exodus where they came out of Egypt. And almost immediately they're like, where are you? Now probably, having seen all that God has done, they don't wonder. This is not a question 
that's built on faith. This is a question that's built on manipulation. So, so Jesus shows us this, with, with, or Satan really shows us, I think, that the way we might test God with Jesus. If Jesus were to jump off the temple, those texts in the Old Testament, Satan probably has rightly understood that God's special chosen one has a provision of protection around him. And so by, by Jesus jumping, he's forcing God to prove his word true by rescuing him. So, maybe a way we could see this happen is someone puts himself in a place of deep pressure and temptation, and then after failing, or maybe even before failing, is asking God, where are you protecting me from this sin? You tell me I'll never be tempted above my ability. But I was in this situation, and I couldn't help it. Like, well, you put yourself in a situation where you're trying to force God's hand. You know, maybe a, an act of provision that God promises to care for his people. So you're financially foolish, and then you look to heaven, and you're like, God, how come you're not taking care of me financially? Is the financial folly followed by the accounting on God's promises is testing God. Okay, doing that then, who becomes king? Who's actually calling the shots? Does that make sense? If Jesus jumps from the temple, who's calling the shots about when and where protection happens? All of a sudden, he is. And because those promises are given for God's, like, blessed righteous one, now it's an affirmation that Jesus is, in fact, under this special divine protection. I mean, I'm pretty confident if I jumped out of the temple, God would be like, well, you know what's coming. The ground. Right? <laughs> like, we know this is not going to end well for Mark. But for Jesus, as God's appointed and, and um, chosen son, it'd be a way for Satan to say, like, one way or another, if God doesn't protect him, Satan wins. Right? Like, if God does protect him, and God is tested, and Jesus triumphs over the Father, we still have a loss. And so I think that's probably the temptation going on there, is that Jesus is being, being put to the test of, will you compel the Father to act and prove his care and loyalty and, and affection over you? So rather than manipulating God's work, we trust by waiting for God's timing and provision, knowing his way is right and best. This is really a question of, like, rulership, are you okay with God being king? Or are you trying to force him to act? Are you okay waiting for God's timing? Are you okay waiting for God to rescue you when he wants? Because that's Israel's problem. We want it now, and if you don't give it to us now, then you're not a good God. And they're trying to, to manipulate God with that call of goodness. So are you willing to wait the psalmist calls us to wait on the Lord, doesn't he? Because it's an act of, of really hard faith to trust and wait for God's timing. And again, this is really about God's rule. So, so I've kind of broken it out that way. Jesus first has to trust God's care. Then he's trusting in God's plan that is going to be very painful for him. And then finally, he has to, he has to trust that God's rulership over him is a right organization of his life. That God has the right to rule him. And that he shouldn't try to manipulate. I mean, so worst case scenario about manipulation is like kid, kid, kid in grocery store illustration. Who's trying to wear the pants in the home? The kid is. The kid is testing mom and dad. 
by trying to wrest control away from them through the manipulation of the moment. And again, the Christian must not throw a fit when God doesn't give them what they want. Rather, he must wait and rest in the Lord. Again, we're looking at Christ here as an example, so let's, let's just consider how amplified his temptations are over ours. He is, he is in a place of absolute innocency, and he never gives in once, not for a moment. And it's not as though he didn't have the inclination, at least in some sense, did he want to die, at least in a, did he want to experience death? I, I, think, I think the answer, he didn't want to experience death. He wanted to redeem us. And does that make sense? In the garden, I think it's pretty clear that he wants the cup to pass from him, but there to be a way of redemption. Did he want to be hungry and not have any food in his belly? No, and, and it seems as though, even with, with the desire to, to wrest control from God, that Jesus as a man is having to learn to trust God's timing and kingship over him. And that God isn't exactly giving this Jesus Christ the timing he wants even. Now Jesus is absolutely having to submit in the hardest circumstances with the deepest cost and he's without sin. And I would suggest to you then that this is the type of righteousness, and I should say the type, this is the righteousness that is imputed to us. I've never been that obedient. But that is my obedience. Right, isn't that sweet? Like, Jesus here isn't just giving us an innocent sacrifice. He is giving us his righteousness. And we're seeing it being done. We're seeing his obedience by faith that becomes ours on the, like on the counting of heaven. Like, this is my obedience I'm reading about. Not, not by deed, but by imputation. That is, God puts it as a credit on my account when I trust Christ. I think it's amazing. But not only that, God calls me to walk like this. So how do I battle against sin like Christ? It's not that I merely know Scripture, but I understand the implications. Jesus isn't giving us, like, faith rules. Right? Man shall not live by bread alone is probably about the most faith-centric call in all these texts. The other one is like, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Okay, that's a do and a don't type thing. Don't do it. Okay, I will not cross that line. But the reason you don't cross the line is because you trust the Father. And you glory in his kingship rather than resent it. The reason we worship the Lord and we don't worship ourselves is because we know we are, we are not God. And we have constantly got to preach that to ourselves because we do want to be the center, don't we? I mean, it is really hard not to enjoy the privilege of having five little servants living with me all the time. <laughs> okay, the house is looking dirty. Kids, clean while I watch TV. <laughs> this world is not mine. It is the Lord's, and he is the Lord, and his timing is right. Perhaps when we look at God's commandments, and I sense this among, among some who struggle with that kind of like rigorous, like do's and don't checklist type stuff, is they've lost the element of faith. They've lost the personal 
in the obedience to the Lord. And so obedience is, is kind of the checklist, punch list type of thing. Like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this. But I think, to use, to use an example, I think in the battle for purity, if we recognize that God has given us a precious gift in, in marriage or in celibacy, and that our life will be more deeply satisfying and better if we keep our hands and eyes where they should be. We keep our hearts satisfied in Christ and with those things he's given us or withheld from us. And we realize that the moment, in the moment, what I hold as a married man or a single man or an old widower, whatever I hold in my hands in that moment is exactly what's good. And for me to strive to put something else in my hands that God has not put there is intrinsically an act of distrust. And it won't be good. Like, it's, it's not a good thing. When Jesus is tempted to, to make stones into food, this is not a good thing for him to have. His full belly would be a rotten belly. It was much more satisfying for him to have the smile of the Father than a stomach full. And I think that's where, like, personally fighting to trust the king who gives the commands is something we want to in, invest in our children and our own hearts and preach to ourselves. Because often, I don't know if you're like me, it's really easy to get into the do's and don'ts quickly because it's much simpler. We don't do that. We do this. Cultivating trust is where we must live.